Prophet. Uh, a very rare profession. There's not many of us. In my time frame, there is three others, most of which you know, and I am probably the least famous of the prophets. But I think it's safe to say that of my contemporaries, I have, without a doubt, the hardest message to deliver. I have the message that hurts the most. You see, God has Isaiah, perhaps the most famous of the four of us, preaching a message of showing the unreasonableness of sin, how foolish it is to rebel against the one true God. In his first opening chapters, God says, let us reason together. Let me show you how foolish it is to walk away from me. Also to the south, the kingdom in the south is Micah. And in Micah's prophecy, God uses Micah as like a, a lawyer of sorts. He brings his people to court and he has his day in court and he brings the trees to witness and he brings the mountains to witness and he brings the stars to witness against his people. Jonah, a prophet of my, of my area, Samaria. He has Jonah go off to Nineveh, the enemies, and show God's love even for the enemies. But me, I'm different. You see, I have the difficult task of being perhaps the only man called to feel like God, to feel the way that God feels, to know the heartbreak that only God understands. If you're not familiar with my book, Hosea, and the 14 chapters that follow, uh, it's a book that God told me to write that describes the nature of the relationship between me and my wife. And he uses that as a parallel between himself and his people. It's a clear message. It's even clear to you after the great event. So as you listen to my life, understand that this is a parallel to your life. My calling begins with a command to marry a woman who will break every covenant promise that she ever made to me from the beginning. But before I lay out my heart, before I lay out my shame, before I lay out my pain before you, let me give you a little background to the kingdom from which I come from. From your perspective, my message was given 2,700 years ago in a small Middle Eastern country called Israel. In my time, Israel has already been divided into two nations. There's two, two nations, one to the, to the south called Judah, and that's where Micah and Isaiah are prophesying. The, the 10 tribes to the north is called Israel, and that's where I and Jonah spend our time prophesying. Jeroboam II is our king. And unlike most of his predecessors, he's incredibly powerful. He has made every single person in my country wealthy. He has extended the borders almost to the point where they were when Solomon the Great was king. The problem is with Jeroboam II, though he's powerful, though he is wealthy, though he has made our boundaries huge, he has also brought in a combining of the pagan worship with the one true God. So my country has syncretized Molech and child sacrifice with the one true God and combined Baal, the lust-driven God Baal with the one true God and Anat, the most violent of goddesses with the one true God. And so while he has done all these great things physically for us, spiritually he's led us into depravity and my nation has followed him wholeheartedly. And all of this safety and all of this wealth is about to be undone in a moment because from the beginning, before our nation was split into two, God wrote a book to us saying, if you break my covenant, if you disobey, 
I will drive you out of the land fast. And we know this, but it's been centuries since our disobedience began and God has not driven the people out. But we know with a surety that comes from time that that day is coming, that that day of being driven from the promised land is coming very close. And it's not gonna be centuries. It's gonna be years away from me, a few years. And it's at this historical point in time where God called me from my simple, ordinary life in Samaria and gave me a message and gave me a mission that's unprecedented. No one else has ever been called to do what I've been called to do. And it's a course in a life that I wouldn't wish on any one of you in this room. You see, nobody gets married with the, unless they have ulterior motives, nobody gets married expecting it to end badly. But I did. I knew from day one that it was gonna end badly. I remember God's word to me. I was reading his scripture. I was meditating on his word in my house when the still small voice of God broke into my thoughts and told me this, go, take to yourself an adulterous wife and children of unfaithfulness because the land is guilty of the vilest adulteries in departing from the one true Lord. Those, <laughs> those words bewildered my heart in ways I can't even explain. You see, I was of marrying age. I was just about to anticipate all the future hopes and joys of what marriage would bring with children. And my dream of the girl next door vanished in an instant. If, if I chose to listen to the word of God, if I chose to walk in obedience, my first thought was I must be crazy. God does not call good prophets to marry prostitutes. He just doesn't do that. But as much as I tried to justify a way out of this position, God kept hitting me with the reality that this is exactly what he was calling me to do. It, this decision wasn't made in an instant. I wrestled with this for a long time and the closest people to me that I told about this event, they looked at me and said, your, your calling must be insanity. God doesn't do this kind of thing. And as I wrestled with it, I had to come to the decision. I would rather be crazy within the will of God than sane outside of the will of God. And so my mind and my heart began to change in my perspective. So I decided that I would willingly choose a woman who would betray me. So I began to search for a woman that up until this point, I had done everything I could to avoid. And now my heart and my mind was looking for a person who's gonna hurt me. There was a young woman in my town. Her name was Gomer. She was a woman who had that reputation. She was so needy, you could just see it across her face as soon as she walked into a room full of men. You could see it in her eyes that she was trying to find her identity, not in God, but in men and what they thought of her. Her, her actions, they weren't, they weren't extreme, they weren't obvious. There was just rumors, hints of rumors, the gossip of her, uh, her misdeeds, her misconducts. But the void that began with the loss of her father followed her through her whole life through string after string of questionable relationships. So she wasn't what I would call beautiful, but she definitely was a person that could be beautiful under the right conditions. She was from a, a poor family, so there was no dowry, there was no money in it for me. And in fact, by choosing to marry her, I was marrying beneath me. My status was gonna be lowered by marrying her. But by me taking a step down and becoming less, she was able to take a step up and become more. And I remember the time that I went to her uncle to ask permission to marry his niece. 
And the first time she saw me and knew my intent, her eyes on me were, were filled, she was enamored. I could see it, she was enamored, intrigued by this man who she'd never met coming into her world asking to marry her. It was almost like I could read the questions on her face. Questions like, am I really that beautiful? What's he doing here? How much am I worth? What's my value? I could see it written on her face. And it was at that moment that something changed in me. You see, I walked into this commitment to God with the intent of marrying a woman, but not really loving her. I mean, if you were in my position, how would you enter something like that? But it was at that moment that my heart was like awakened. I started to fall in love with this woman. Her neediness, her pain drew me to her. And she wasn't the greatest or the, the be- most beautiful or the wealthiest, but there was something about her that I just started to love. So she was no longer that girl of questionable character to me. She was slowly becoming the one that I would marry and the one that I would love. A couple months went by and the day we were to be married was perhaps the weightiest and most heartbreaking day up until my, that point in my life. You see, I stood before a woman that I had come to love and I was gonna make a promise to love her with all of my life, for all of my life. I promised to her to allow her pain to become my pain to give her my best, to love and cherish only her in the good times and in the bad times. And every time she made the reciprocal vow of, I promise to, it was like an arrow stabbing into my heart because I knew with every promise she was making me that she was gonna break it. And yet, here I stood, willfully entering into a covenant that I knew was gonna hurt me knowing she would rebel against everything she was now saying. And as we walked away that day, she looked into my eyes and she said, why do you look so sad on the happiest day of your life? And I I couldn't explain it because there's only one in the universe who knows my position of love and sadness mixed together at this point. Our marital troubles began as soon as the formal wedding had ended. Her eyes began to wander to every man who walked by and I could feel her heart start to pull away from me and as she sought happiness in somebody other than me, it just made the pain all the more intense because I was the only one in her life who had ever committed anything to her. Everyone else was out for themselves and I was out for her. Our first son was born within the first year of our marriage and as I held my firstborn son, God came in and spoke to me again and said, I want you to name this baby Jezreel. (laughs) The birth of a child shouldn't bring foreboding, should it? But yet being told to name my son Jezreel, that's exactly what hit my heart, a weight. You see, the name sounds nice, Jezreel. It means God plants. It sounds positive, but it's a name rich with meaning and not the good kind of rich. It literally, as I said, means God plants, but in our historical understanding of that word, A few decades before, it was in a town named Jezreel that God had fulfilled his promise to the most wicked king our nation ever saw. It was in the town of Jezreel that Ahab and his entire family line was wiped out, never to to exist again as if it never had existed. And it was wiped out by a wicked king who would also rise to power and pursue his own thing and also himself be wiped out. That was the past, that name Jezreel, a place of judgment but there's also a prophetic future event that we have been told about that in the Valley of Jezreel, my nation is gonna reach and have its greatest defeat. 
So it's a twofold name, a past and a future, neither of which is positive. Because with Assyria's power growing in the east, it doesn't take any one of us much imagination to imagine what's coming. And that eventually our nation will be destroyed and it will be destroyed in the valley of Jezreel. You see, Jezreel for our nation carries the same weight as your word Armageddon. Would anyone name their kid Armageddon? And yet that's what God told me to name my firstborn son. And as our future loomed closer, his name would instill even more dread in the people that he met, the people he talked to. And that was my firstborn, Jezreel. My marriage continued to deteriorate as time went on. And after Jezreel was weaned, Gomer was gone more and more. Every night she was out. I couldn't keep her home no matter what I tried. And it didn't take long before the rumors started to spread and before men started looking at me with jeering, mocking me with their intent of what they've done. And as I passed through the market, I could no longer hide my, I had to hide my face more and more. And not long after Jezreel was weaned, my wife became pregnant and gave birth to another baby, Lo Ruhama. Sounds beautiful in English, Lo Ruhama. But in Hebrew, in my language, it means not loved. God whispered to me, and you shall name your daughter not loved. I don't think I have to explain the symbolism of what that means concerning my people and their relationship with God. A year later, my, work, my wife gave birth to another son. And as this baby was born, it, was, it became clear to me that it wasn't my child. And God whispered, unsurprisingly, this one didn't surprise me, but it was very harsh. She whispered to me and said, this is the name of your next son. You're to name him Loami, which means not mine or not my people. This was probably the harshest point in my life, not just because of the name that goes with my, my third child and not just because Gomer left me after this event and walked out the door, but because of what this name represented concerning my, my people's relationship with the one true God. You see, we were the chosen people and for God to have me name a kid that represents his people as not mine breaks my heart. You see, they, they had disowned God and now God was disowning them because sin separates, it always does. Sin causes division between people. And in my case, Gomer's sin caused her to leave, to walk out the door, promising never to return because that's the nature of sin, separation. And I'll never forget the words she said to me as she left because it's ingrained in my mind. Here's what she said as she was leaving. She said, I'm gonna go after my lovers and they will give me my food and they will give me my water and my wool and my linen and my oil and my drink. And the thing that rips me apart is in our house with all those things that she said she wanted. And she was leaving to go look for it somewhere else even though I was providing all these things for her. And in the same way, my people Israel had left the one true God to go after these things elsewhere, even though God said all these things are found here with me. I call this the beginning of the darkest days for me because my agony only grew as my reputation was shot. The elders of the town came to me and they said, you should at least divorce her, at least divorce her. And if you want, you have the law on your side, you can push for the death penalty as is our custom according to the Old Testament. But in my heart of hearts, I knew that this wasn't how this story was supposed to end. I didn't know how the story was supposed to end, but I knew this wasn't it. 
And so I gave mercy to Gomer and let her do her thing. So I found myself alone with three children, all under the age of five. My reputation was destroyed and through it all, I could not stop loving my wife. I prayed every night, Lord, take this love away from me. At least let me move on. At least let me put this behind me. And every single night, God said with a resounding, no, you can't. My love for me was a fire in my soul that I could not keep in. And as much as I wanted to put it out, God would not let me. You know what kind of position that is? To love a person who keeps twisting the knife and not be able to let it go? For me, that's what makes my story more than just tragic, but truly horrible, is my love hasn't faded. The words of Solomon the wise have maybe never been truer for any man besides me. Here's what he said at the, book of, of the end of his book, Song of Solomon. He said, love is as strong as death. It's jealousy unyielding as the grave. It burns like a fire, like a mighty flame. And he writes that in the context of a beautiful message of marriage. And I read those words in the context of a messy divorce that isn't even happening. I won't go into all the horrible things that happened in that time frame of my life. I just wanna tell you about the single darkest day that came. It began no more terrible than any of my other shame-filled days. In the morning, I, walked, I got up, I took the gauntlet of going to the marketplace, of hearing the jeers of the people, all the respectable people avoiding eye contact with me, not wanting to look me in the eye, hearing the innuendos of the men who knew more about my wife than I did. And I was just finishing making the arrangements to have some food delivered to my house for my children when I heard a report about Gomer. And the report said that she was starving. The report said that she was in the deepest of needs. And at the very strong prompting of God, uh, in fact, a prompting I could not avoid, uh, I went out of my way, I bought her grain, I bought her new wine and oil. And if that wasn't enough, I was committed to give her the very money that was in my purse for her. I thought, perhaps this will spark the memory of her love for me. Perhaps she'll come back. And then I began the uh, humiliating task of trying to track her down, of trying to find out where she was, having to ask around in the marketplace. I finally found where she was staying and when the man opened the door, it was a guy I'd gone to school with my whole life who was there. And by the fact that he looked down and wouldn't make eye contact, I knew I had found the right place. And so I said to him, I know you're not taking proper care of Gomer. I know she's starving physically. I know she's starving emotionally. I know she's starving spiritually under your care. I want you to promise that this food and this money that I'm giving you makes it into her hands. I know you don't love her. I know you're just using her, but I still love her and I still wanna take care of her. Please let her know that I was here. So I gave him the food, I gave him the money, and he awkwardly agreed and I trudged off to work. It was almost dusk on that day when I was returning home with my head down as was my custom and this thing up like so. At least these days, that's my custom with my mind on other things. And as I happened to be looking around, which is kind of rare, I looked up and there before me was Gomer and my heart just went up into my throat. I was like, there, there she is. Haven't seen her in months and there she is walking straight towards me. She'd gotten thinner, thinner than I'd ever seen her before. Her hair was stringy. Her face was a type of haggard that even all the money, all the makeup she'd put on couldn't hide it. And there was a crazed shine in her eye. And of all the things that I anticipated coming out of her mouth, 
all the things that I thought she would say. What she said took me by surprise because here's what she said. She said, I told you, Hosea, my lovers provide for me better than you ever could. Just today, my lover gave me grain and new wine and oil and money. He provides for me in ways you never could. He's a real man. And with that, she pushed by me and went on her way. And it wouldn't have hurt more if she had taken a knife and stabbed me in the heart because I'd provided those things and she attributed those things to something else. Part of me died that day. And as I was walking home in darkness, both physical and spiritual, I kept asking God, God, how can you do this to me? I can't do this anymore. In fact, I refuse to do this. And that became like a mantra as I walked home. I can't do this. Why are you doing this to me? I refuse to do this anymore. I opened the door. I uh, you know, half-heartedly thanked my aunt for watching the children. And then little Ruhama ran up to me to give me a hug. And I was clearly distracted. And as I picked her up to give her a hug, I looked at her and her face was covered in makeup as only a three-year-old can apply. Eyeliner up here, mascara everywhere, lipstick on her cheeks. And half distracted, I said, little Ru, why are you wearing so much makeup? And she said, daddy, because I wanna be just like mommy. I almost dropped her at that point because of the agony that just hit me when she said that. The sadness that went through my body in ways I can't even explain. Because see, the effects of Gomer were not just on me or her, but on these children. And the effects of sin go from person to person. And the future of what her life could be was too horrific for me to imagine. So the days went on and the hope of ever feeling something besides sadness again faded. So pretty much I just learned to deal with the pain. But that was until the one day when God spoke to me again and started a conversation to which I can never look at Gomer the same way again. And I can never look at my nation Israel the same way again. I can't even look at myself the same way again. The visit from the Almighty came at perhaps the most unusual of times. The day before he came to speak to me, the day before that I heard in the market through the market communication system, or we like to call it the market gossip, that Gomer was in a condition way worse than I could have ever imagined. Her recent lover had taken all of her resources, all of her money, basically everything that I'd given to her and had kicked her out and she was homeless on the street now. And she had decided to allow herself to be sold as a slave rather than risk coming back to me. And even at the perceivable end, she was still standing in defiance with her fist raised. Originally, I had no intention of going. You know, I don't, I don't wanna see that. And even though my heart was broken and scarred, I didn't wanna watch her go through the ordeal of being ogled as nothing but a piece of sickly meat. But I couldn't avoid the prompting of God. And God said, you are to go, you are to go. So early the next morning, I left the children with my aunt again, headed off to the auction block. I watched the trading of life for money, starting with the strongest and the most able people. And then as it slowly went down the ranks, we got to the weakest and least valuable people, at least perceived by cash. I stood in the back, I had my hood up so as to not be noticed, because after all, prophets don't buy slaves. And I watched. And I was there for several hours, and at the selling of an old man, I decided maybe this wasn't true. And I was just about to head out. The auctioneer laughed loudly. In these kind of environments, auctioneers don't usually laugh. 
And as I turned, there was Gomer. And she looked worse than I could have imagined. And he said, I wouldn't give a shekel for this lady, but she's our last one up. She was broken, she was sick, she was used up. And it was at this point that God stepped in to talk to me. I can't explain the voice of God, so I'm not even gonna try. Uh, you kind of have to be there to know how to profit heal or what a prophet hears. But at the moment he began to speak to me, he spoke his truth to my heart and began with questions as he always does. For those of you who have read my book, I tried my best to write down what he communicated, but words can barely express the heart of God. So if you choose to read the 14 chapters of Hosea, just remember these are the words that he spoke. He said this, Hosea, how do you feel right now? In my heart, I said, Lord, you know exactly how I feel right now. I am brokenhearted, I am angry, I never wanted this, but this position that Gomer's in is exactly what she deserves. And though this isn't what I wanted, this is what she deserves. And then he asked me, why are you hurting right now? And at first the question was kind of obvious, like, well, of course the reason why I'm hurting is because I've been betrayed, my honor has been trampled, my wife has left me. But then I had to go a little deeper than that and think, why do I hurt right now? And the, the realization came, it's because I've lost something. My pain comes from what I've lost. And then God spoke to me, he said, Hosea, I also hurt, but not for the exact same reason that you do. You hurt because of what you've lost. I hurt because of what your people have lost in having a relationship with me. You see, God's not needy. God isn't in heaven saying, I hope somebody worships me so I have identity. God's not that way. God is perfectly content, happy, and loved within the Trinity. He doesn't need us. But when he sees us walk away, he hurts for what we lose in walking away. So he said, he said you hurt because of Gomer. I hurt too, but for a different reason. He said, Hosea, who do you represent in this symbolic and very sordid story? Who are you in this story that you're living? And I was like, God, this is a pretty obvious answer. I represent you. And Gomer represents your people. And then he looked at me, well, figuratively looked at me. He said, my son, you're only partially correct. Yes, Gomer does represent Israel. And yes, you sort of represent me, but she represents much more than that. She represents all people everywhere. She represents you, Hosea. You have a heart that's like Gomer at the core. Even you have committed adultery. Even you have loved other things besides me. You haven't bowed your knee to Baal like so many of your countrymen have. But you've sought to find your identity in something else besides me. You sought money to bring you comfort. You sought relationship to bring you comfort. You sought pleasure and entertainment and security over me. See, Hosea, you've lived in rebellion in your heart. And even though you did not act out of that rebellion very often, the heart was still in rebellion against me. You've professed your love for me and then turned to other things. What you want to do, you don't do. And the very things you don't wanna do, these are the things you keep on doing. Everyone is Gomer because all have sinned. That's what he said to me. And then he said these mysterious words. He said, but there is going to be one who will not. And he didn't go on, he didn't expand. And then he said, in the beginning, sin came into this world and destroyed it, but I'm in the process of reversing it. The names of your children and the essences of what those names mean are gonna be undone and reversed. He said, Hosea, there's coming a day when I'm going to plant my people and they will never be uprooted. The day is coming when Jezreel will be real. God plans. 
the Israelites will be like the sand on the seashore and they will be called no longer, not my people, but my people. And, and this is a weird phrase because God never speaks this way very often. Sons of the living God. Sons, Hosea, sons is what I want, not just servants. And I will call my people loved. And Israel will no longer call me my master or just my God, but they will call me my husband. Hosea, this is what I'm after. But I asked, but haven't you disowned Israel? Isn't that what this is all about? Your disowning of a people who've disowned you? And if you know anything of God, he often speaks in mystery. And here's what he said. If you disown me, I will disown you. That if you are faithless, I will remain faithful because I cannot disown myself. You are my people and my faithfulness does not hinge on your faithfulness. I asked God, but what about the betrayal? What about the broken covenants? What about the sin and the separation? You can't look on sin. What about that? Someone has to pay. And there was a pause, not because God was thinking, but because I knew that what he was about to say was to be emphasized and that a pause would do that well. He said, Hosea, I want you to buy back your wife. I want you to pay for her. I want you to show her love, even though she has betrayed and broken every promise she ever made to you. I want you to show her your love, even if you don't know what the future is gonna hold, even if she chooses to walk away again. But I'm going to t die a type of death different than the type of death you've been dying. Because no doubt, Hosea, you've been dying on the inside. But I'm gonna take a death that goes so deep as to undo death itself. I'm gonna make the payment. I'm gonna send the chosen one to die on your behalf in a way you'll never understand. You now understand clearly what the Old Testament has taught you your whole life, that sin has to be removed through the shedding of blood, but you now realize no animal's death can undo the betrayal that Gomer has done. You could sacrifice a thousand cows and it's not gonna ease the pain or undo the damage. You understand that now. In order for sin to be removed, the son of David has to die. He's going to be the one to do it. And he's gonna be the one who's gonna be betrayed for 30 shekels of silver. He's gonna be the one who will be abandoned by his followers. He will be convicted, he will be tortured, he will be executed, he will be cut off from me so that you never have to. His blood will be the price. He said to me, Hosea, there is more to this story than you know. He said to me, there's always more to the story than you know. And I had to stop for a second. He said, love her as I have loved you, redeem her. With that, the auctioneer's voice broke in. He said, 50 shekels. Does anyone wanna pay 50 shekels for this wreck of a life? Can I get 40 shekels? At that point, I raised my hand and I thought, what value of stuff I had at home? I said, I've got 15 shekels here. I've got 15 ephahs of barley back home. Any one of you men can sell one ephah of barley for one shekel. I think I have roughly 30 shekels of silver to buy back this life. And I threw the money down and they took it. So for 30 pieces of silver, I exchanged for her life. She wasn't worth that to anyone else, but she was worth that to me. And I had to think how much more is it gonna cost God to bring us back into a right relationship with him? Is it gonna be 30 pieces of silver? Or is it gonna be the blood of the son of God? Whatever that means. I won't say it was easy from that point on. 
that everything magically got better and everything ended rosy. Gomer's heart was changed. There's still tears in the night. There's still pain. There's still agony. Her longing for her former life ebbs and flows. But something changed in me too because now I can see my own sin and my own sin longing ebbs and flows. And I can understand her heart better than I could before. Our relationship hasn't been perfect, but for now, our relationship isn't the end all or be all of our existence. You see, we both have seen something on the horizon, something that's coming, something that's bigger than any of us, bigger than this event, bigger than even the symbolism of what my heart's supposed to represent. I wanna conclude with what God promised me. Here's what he said to me. And it's even maybe more important for you on the other side of the great event than it even is for me. Maybe it's clearer to you than it is to me. But here's what God said. He said, in that day, I will remove the weapons of war from the land. All swords, all bows will be taken out so that you can live unafraid, so you can live in peace and safety. I will make you mine forever, showing you righteousness and justice, an unfailing love and compassion. I will be faithful to you and I will make you mine. And here's the words I want you to pay attention to. And you will finally know that I am the Lord. And I can't wait for the finally of that day. The finally knowing the Lord and the peace that comes from him. Amen.